0: Hi, everybody. My name is Stefan Molyneux. I'm the host of Freedom Domain Radio, and today we are going east uh, to the fiery furnace of social revolution known as the Ukraine. I have with me Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, Assistant Secretary to the Treasury for Economic Policy, and Associate Editor sorry, under Reagan and Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal, columnist for Business Week, Scripps Howard News Service, and Creator Syndicate. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Roberts, for taking the time today. You're welcome. All right, so the Ukraine appears to have uh, precipitated itself into a crisis uh, over, it seems roughly, East versus West. Do they want to join the EU, or are they basically going to be bullied into maintaining trade relationships uh, with Russia? Now, I like, I mean, my my sort of specialty is history, so I go kind of deep, and... um, The Ukrainian history with Russia, particularly in the 1930s, was so brutal. And then there was the Nazi occupation from the West and then there was the reoccupation by uh, Russia. I mean, how how could they even be tempted to either of these or is this simply a government initiative to cover overspending?
1: Uh, Well, uh, Ukraine has really been part of Russia for 200 years. The Ukrainians really haven't had any independence since I think the 14th century. Uh, They belong to different people, uh, Lithuania, Poland, (laughs) and um, the current Ukraine is really two separate countries. During the Soviet era, the uh, Soviet leadership added uh, traditional parts of Russia to Ukraine, the Crimea. Kharkov, the Donets Basin. I think they did this uh, in order to Russify the Ukraine and increase the Russian population and um, uh, to uh, help weld it into the Soviet Empire. Now, of course, the Soviets didn't expect that the Union would collapse and that Ukraine would become independent. And so it's held together so far because they... Re- You know, the United States tried to take uh, the Ukraine over, I think, in 2004. When was the Orange Revolution? That was 2004, yeah. So Washington came close then. Uh, It didn't work out. And uh, the current uh, government is uh, elected uh, in a democratic election. And Ukraine is independent now, there was pressure on the Ukraine from Washington and the EU uh, to join uh, the EU. Essentially, uh, the Western banks want to be sure they can loot the Ukraine, and like they did Greece and Latvia and, and anywhere they can get a, a hold on. And uh, Washington wants NATO bases there because it's part of the drive for American world hegemony if they can have anti-ballistic missile bases in Ukraine, essentially they've uh, uh, downgraded uh, the Russian strategic deterrent and removed uh, Russia's ability to stand up to the US. And uh, that would only leave China. So this is an orchestrated uh, effort by the United States. Um, It's now well known. The uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, uh, declared last December at the National Press Club that Washington had spent uh, $5 billion aligning uh, Ukraine uh, with the West. This, of course, uh, a lot of this is through the uh, so-called non-governmental organizations, which are essentially uh, a fifth column for Washington. And they've been active there for years, stirring up dissent and and organizing groups. Uh, they have various uh, guises, various covers, uh, human rights organizations, educational teaching democracy, all of this sort of stuff so that's what what happened um, uh, when the president of Ukraine uh, said no to joining. The EU, uh, Washington unleashed the protest, and um, the uh, the Ukrainian government has been very hesitant to uh, put the protest down the way they would be put down in the United States, or or Greece or Spain or or wherever, and and so they got out of hand, and various. Uh, more radical, ultra-nationalist groups um, managed to secure arms and the protests became violent. And the moderate leaders of the protests, uh, the Ukrainian moderates, uh, were interviewed on uh, television and said they had lost control. And that's the, the simple fact, they've lost control. So what are the stakes? Well. Since uh, the, uh, Russia regards NATO bases in Ukraine as a serious strategic threat to the independence of Russia, uh, they, they're not going to look, <laughs> look with any favor toward that. And since half of the country is Russian, anyhow, and <clears throat> that half will. Simply uh, s- secede from the Ukraine and go back to Russia, where it has always been, because they certainly won't want to be part of uh, of the EU. And the funny thing about it, uh, the protesters are going on about at least the the, the uh, sincere ones, the university students, uh, not the ones paid, bust in, and, and not these armed. Elements, but the sincere ones are, are going on about independence. Independence. Well, of course, if you enter the EU, you don't have any independence. As Greece found out, Italy, Spain. Uh, who has independence? Essentially, Germany. And and the UK because they're not actually in it. They're in it, but they kept their own currency, so they don't have. They're not subject to the financial. Um, enemy or imperialism that the other countries are. <clears throat> so it's very strange that uh, these students who are so concerned about independence <laughs> want to give it up to the EU. So that's. that's well, and
0: uh, of course, to the, sorry to interrupt, but for the strictures of the IMF, the IMF recently uh, gave $15 billion to the Ukrainian government contingent upon specific reforms, you know, opening up the country to more investment, which often means, as you say, multinational predation upon the natural resources, raising the price of natural gas, such as their chief export, by 40 percent, which in a cold country, of course, is political suicide. So it seems that the requirements to get into EU were too much to be politically sustainable. And of course, what was was Russia offering was the $15 billion uh, of aid that they needed through, you know, the buying of the bonds and through subsidies to the natural, uh, sorry, to the resource that they would be selling to the Ukraine. So it seems just like they ran out of money and Russia was offering and the EU was uh, not offering and they went that way.
1: Right. Well, it, it doesn't make any sense for them to uh, go into the EU. Uh, but what's most disturbing about all of this is uh, here it shows Washington not having any real judgment because they don't mind bringing a strategic threat to a nuclear armed power. And so what we are witnessing is uh, is this sort of uh, great power confrontation possibility. You know, this is—isn't uh, this uh, some anniversary of World War One, <laughs> And all the great powers uh, just made all the most uh, fantastic blunders and walked right into this uh, war that destroyed all of them. Russia was destroyed— <laughs> the the Austro-Hungarian Empire is destroyed, uh, every, every, everything's destroyed, all, all the ruling dynasties. Uh, so that's what I think uh, is uh, the possibility we face now. But if, if the Americans keep, or Washington, if Washington keeps pushing this, um, it is a strategic threat to Russia. And I don't know what uh, Washington's uh, response will be when uh, half of the Ukraine simply breaks off. You know, what What will they uh, do? And so I, I think the prospect of, uh, of there being a, a confrontation is, is high, and it's a very would be a very dangerous one uh, if it came to a military one. Uh, I don't think uh, the West
0: could prevail in Russia's backyard. uh, No, it would be a disaster to even try. But uh, I know that you come from the Republican side of the fence, but wouldn't it be fair to say that uh, Democrats have a history of, I guess, charitably being put uh, fumbling and creating a significant and escalating disasters in terms of when they meddle with foreign policy, particularly when military strength is involved. I think Democrats have a history of uh, this uh, kind of mismanagement and provocation followed by a lack of follow through in military affairs.
1: Well, I think you're you're correct about that. Of course, now it's worse because we have the neoconservatives and we have their ideology of uh, U.S. world hegemony. So it's a it's a much worse situation than normal with the Democrats, because if you have a an ideology of world hegemony, uh, then you are prepared to take risks. And Russia and China are the real checks on this hegemony. So if you can neutralize Russia with missile bases on their border. you only have to worry about China so I think this is a, a definite effort on the part of Washington if you you know we have the recorded conversation of the assistant of the uh, assistant secretary of State Newland with the American ambassador in Ukraine and it's clearly they've plotted a coup they they've decided who who they're going to put in power and how they're going to uh, pull it off and it, it it's revealing it's not anything about um, joining the the EU it's about taking over ukraine
0: and there's this this grim repetition ab- about this and this weird kind of orwellian memory hole that this stuff gets into because now they're talking about funding a coup to ask the person that in 2004 they funded the two the coup to put in it's a sort of rotating door saddam hussein situation where yesterday's friend is tomorrow's enemy it's completely bizarre and you had a wonderful word prostitutes uh, in your article. Uh, why, I mean, is the press so dependent upon government handouts of information and and uh, control that they simply can't point any of this obvious stuff out, that now the U.S. is, is paying these protesters and there's no way the Ukrainian government can pay its protesters the equivalent of $5 billion the U.S. can sink into the situation. Uh, why is nobody talking about how orchestrated this all is?
1: <laughs> well, it's like you say... Uh, if you're a news organization, uh, you have to have sources, and the government's source, and so you can't poison that. But it's even worse now because remember, uh, in the last years of the Clinton administration, um, the American media was concentrated in few hands. I think it's about five mega companies now that own the whole print, TV, uh, media, and so uh, if you, and and these are huge conglomerates. And the value of the companies is, are the federal broadcast licenses. So you can't afford to get on the wrong side of the government. Moreover, these, co- these companies are no longer run by journalists. They're, they're run by corporate advertising executives and former government officials. <laughs> and so the, what they're focused on is uh, advertising revenues and keeping their federal broadcast licenses. And, and the editors know they can't get aggressive. And so they have to restrain the reporters, and reporters know the easiest thing to do is to have a government source. Because you can always tell the editor, I have a source. This is my source. And so it functions as a propaganda mechanism. The American media is now a ministry of propaganda. And uh, it doesn't—they wouldn't touch any uh, story that challenged
0: the uh, line coming out of Washington— It is a strange situation because I'm old enough to remember when what's called isolationism, which to me is a very strange and negative phrase, which is isolationism, of course, is simply you don't meddle in military and political affairs overseas. You can trade with everyone you want. You can get involved with everyone you want at an economic and cultural and artistic and social level. Go visit, go chat, go enjoy the dances of foreign countries. But what is called isolationism, which to me is simply as sensible as if it's a terrible sea and you stay in your port, you don't call yourself isolationist with regard to sailing you're just sensible and so this idea that the US is the world's policeman that the US has a vested interest in every country and 700 plus military bases overseas I'm old enough to remember when this used to be something that would be debated and now it it doesn't even show up I mean unless Ron Paul pops up on the TV screen it doesn't show up Uh, in, in any political debates whatsoever it is simply one of these things that is completely assumed like it would be like questioning gravity how on earth did that come about? It seems to be a pretty legitimate debate to be having.
1: Well, you know, several things brought it about, didn't it? I mean, it the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a major constraint on uh, American hegemony power. Uh, the, the corporations went global, transnational. Uh, they want more territory to uh, exploit and uh, occupy economically. And then we had the neoconservative ideology, which gives a driving force that America's uh, function in the world is to turn it into America. <laughs> it's an empire, and so you know we are. The, what do we declare to be the exceptional people, the indispensable country? So it's almost, you know, it's like the French Revolution, only it's to be worldwide now. You know, the French were only going to (laughs) take their ideas to Europe. The Americans would take it to the whole world. They've got to be like us, the end of history. We are at the end of history. The world has to be modeled on us. We have the right to impose our ways. This is all the neoconservative doctrine. And it's been active now through Two terms of a Republican president, and now two terms of a Democratic president, and the neoconservatives are the ones who are in these uh, these positions. That's who the assistant secretaries are, and the undersecretaries, and the National Security Council. That they, they're all. Uh, this Victoria Newland as a it's a neoconservative. She's married to one of the most notorious uh, uh, neoconservatives, Kagan. Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor to Obama, this is a neoconservative. So this is their agenda. They see it as the way to uh, knock Russia down, make it weaker, uh, give it more problems, um, put it in a position where it has to acquiesce uh, or make deals, <clears throat> and this this is uh, removing the obstacle to American hegemony and to. American domination economically as well as politically and militarily. So this makes it extremely dangerous because it puts an ideological element in driving all of the usual normal self-interest.
0: So I yeah, think certainly if you uh, morality tends to be the great exaggerator of the power play of politics and tends to make you forget consequences. You know, most of us are virtuous, not because we fear consequences, but for the happiness that comes from being virtuous itself. And so consequences go out the window when a moral imperative comes by. And some of this very risky, um, non-pragmatic, non-consequentialist non-utilitarian stuff where you go poking this Russian bear with missiles. I mean, the last time this occurred was, you could argue, in 62 with the Khrushchev's response to the American missiles in Turkey, uh, which was, of course, the attempt to ship missiles into Cuba. And uh, we all know what kind of world crisis that provoked. And it seems to be this complete inability to circle back and try and learn from these these terrifying lessons.
1: That's right. The, you know, they never learn from the past. This is Every kind of historian has said this. And, um, but it's, you know, during, uh, during the sixties, there was a the cold war. And, uh, at the time the United States didn't have an agenda of taking over the world. Its agenda was to prevent the Soviets from taking over the world. Uh, but now the United States does have an agenda of taking over the world. And therefore that makes it more reckless and more willing to take risk and more willing to stick fingers in the Russian bear's eyes. And, but for Russia, this is a question of national survival. It's not a question of having more influence or less, it's how how are we an independent country if uh, Washington's got Ukraine and we have anti-ballistic missile bases, not only in Poland and the Czech Republic and in Georgia where they'll end up, but also in Ukraine. We're defenseless. We, we have no ability to function as a sovereign, independent state. So they are, they've already declared this to be a serious strategic threat. So I expect that uh, if Washington keeps pushing,
0: uh, there'll be some kind of great power confrontation. Very very scary um <clears throat> if you don't mind one last question dr Roberts um, uh, given that I think you're the counterbalance to Noam Chomsky, who I've had on the show as well as one of the most prominent uh, Republicans that I've had on the show. It seems to me that the the Reagan Revolution, which was very inspiring to you know free market capitalists like myself uh, the, the the rhetoric that came out the 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 positive goals and intentions that came out of. The Reagan Revolution. You know, we weren't expecting a full Austrian economics revolution, but there was quite a lot of optimism about the degree to which Reagan plus Thatcher was going to sort of turn around the socialist snowball juggernaut of the planet that seems to be eating the Western economies whole. And now it seems so watered down that you have John Boner uh, backing down. Uh, from even imposing any kind of debt ceiling. I don't know if he's afraid that the media is going to always spin it to be anti-Republican, but dealing with the left-wing media has been a constant part of Republican politics since the post-war period. So what do you think is going on with the Republican revolution? They always seem to be playing defense, and they always seem to be backing down or moving back from any position that they have uh, is, is that an accurate assessment? I don't live in the country. That's just what I see. Is that an accurate assessment? Or do you think, and, and if not, why not? And if so, do you think that there's any chance to, to try and bring back some of that uh, Reaganite optimism that was so prevalent in the 80s?
1: Well, um, you know, Reagan had two goals. One was to stop the stagflation, the simultaneous rise in unemployment and inflation. And the other was to end the Cold War. He wasn't a militarist and didn't say he was going to win it. He would end it. And he achieved both goals. Uh, but the, the the Republicans behind Reagan, they were essentially outsiders. You know they had they had to take the nomination away from the Republican establishment. And then he, Reagan was told that uh, he has to bring George Bush in. Uh, or the Republican establishment would turn on him the way they did on Goldwater, and he would lose. And so he brought them in, and so in that way, they took back over the party. So the, the Reagan thing didn't survive him. It went back to uh, the Republican establishment, and, and uh, who quickly lost it to Clinton. But we had, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of the neoconservatives, They had penetrated the Reagan administration, but ended up firing them all. And some of them were actually prosecuted. Um, But they had to come back with Clinton uh, in the whole Yugoslav thing, Serbia, all that. And uh, also, uh, when uh, George Bush was president, they simply took over the administration. They They held every important position. And so, what the Republican Party is no longer what it was. It's Even the Republican establishment is gone. Uh, the Reagan people are long gone. And uh, so what you have now are the neoconservatives, and then you have these Tea Party people who uh, essentially want to uh, cut out all income support programs at a time when there's no jobs. <laughs> This this doesn't work, you know. You, you can't do that. So I, and as for the left wing, you know, they've disappeared too. I think the left wing lost its fire when communism collapsed. There was no longer an alternative to American capitalism. You know, we we saw China changed, Russia, the whole thing. Just kind of deflated them, and it's very hard to find where it is this left wing press. I mean, it's very silent. <laughs> you know, uh, Alexander Coburn before he died, and his uh, colleague uh, Jeffrey St Clair, they wrote repeatedly. There's not a left wing press. Where would it go? It's gone. So I think that's, I think that's largely true. What we have is a ministry of propaganda for the government and for the corporations. And at this time, the corporations and the government are not at one another's throats; They're cooperating. And so it's sort of a, a, a monoculture <laughs> where well, the government and the corporations merge. People are starting to say it looks like fascism.
0: And maybe, yeah. maybe it does. <laughs> and I wonder if you could just spend a minute or two uh, talking about your uh, new book, How America Was Lost, we'll, of course, put a link to it in the um, in the show notes for for this conversation. Um, what, what impelled you to write it and what would you argue is the central thesis? <laughs>
1: well, you know, um, the country was lost when the people accepted uh, they had to have a police state to be free of terrorists. <laughs> in other words, only the police state can make you safe. So what we have in the United States is uh, we, the civil liberties have been completely set aside. You know, we have indefinite detention uh, for American citizens. Uh, Obama went one step further and claims the right to be able to murder American citizens without due process of law if somebody in the administration suspects they might be involved in terrorism. Uh, we have uh, this universal spying, which is strictly illegal. It's, it, it's prohibited by the, uh, the, the FISA Act, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, we have uh, these uh, administration officials lying to Congress, admitting they lie and remaining in office. So, uh, we, essentially, the United States now has all the attributes of a police state. It also has all the attributes of, uh, of a militarist uh, warfare state. You know, it claims it has the right to decide who the governments are going to be of various countries, including Ukraine, <laughs> Libya, Syria, Iran. Um, it claims it has a right to invade these countries. It's committing war crimes under the under the Nuremberg standard. It's you know it's a war you know military aggression is a war crime. That's what we use to convict the the Germans after World War II and sentence them to death. Um, they torture. Torture is strictly illegal under American law and international law, and yet the United States tortures. Uh, the United States executed uh, Japanese uh, after World War II because they water Americans. So this uh, the country is not anything like what people think it is. It's been completely turned on its head. There's been a massive coup d'etat in the United States. Civil liberties no longer mean anything. Um the Posse Comitatus Act is history because we now have all these uh, publications instructing the military how to maintain domestic uh, law enforcement and peace within the United States. Uh, they've constructed uh, an entire city, so in, in Virginia, so the military can practice uh, putting down rebellion from Americans. <laughs> <laughs> it's and none, you know, it's just an amazing thing. And most people don't know this. They don't know how these people have been treated. It's just a complete mystery to them. And yet it's right there. It's open.
0: It's not denied. Uh, the director yeah, of national... It certainly is health. very dangerous to wait until tyranny right. manifests itself in a very tangible way. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: That's well, you know, you had the director of national intelligence. The Congress said, "Are you spying on us?" He said, "No, no." And then he had, and he got caught. And he had to say, "Well, yes, I lied. To, I lied to you." <laughs> and he's still there. I mean, nothing has happened. Um, remember, they Nixon had to resign because he lied about when he learned about the date at which he learned of a burglary that he had nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted to impeach uh, uh, Clinton. In fact, they did. The House impeached him for lying about his sexual affair with a White House intern. Well, the Nixon and Clinton uh, crimes <laughs> were so minute compared to what we've got in front of us every day, and nothing is done about it. There's not even any outcry in the press. Uh, the Congress is not saying, "What? You, you came down here and you lied to us. Well, we'll accept your resignation. If not, we're going to impeach you. You know, Congress can impeach any presidential appointee, you know, all the way down to the assistant secretary level. But, but nothing happens. I mean, nothing. So we, we are lawless. The country's lawless. The government's lawless is what I mean. They've taken away the protective features in the Constitution that protects people from arbitrary power. In other words... Law is no longer a shield of the people; it's a weapon in the hands of the government, and they use it like that. So it, it's 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 already happening. I mean, tyranny is already happening, and uh, the whole basis there is now, and and it's all happened without a peep. There's hardly any peep. The law schools aren't saying anything. The bar associations, <laughs> Congress, nobody's in the streets. And yet we're so concerned about democracy in Ukraine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But are protesting home. far less uh, corruption. And the idea that they're going to join the EU to avoid the corruption of their own government. I think a report came out recently from a commission for the EU uh, basically pointing out that the uh, level of corruption in the EU is actually about the same size as the entire Ukrainian economy, uh, it, uh, it, the business political nexus of corruption, he said, affects all 28 EU member countries and costs the EU economies $162.2 billion per annum, which is almost as large as the size of the entire GDP of U- Ukraine. So the idea that they're going to go west to the bureau- bureaucrats in Brussels to avoid the corruption at home is, is just a complete, f- I mean, talk about out of the frying pan into the fire.
1: <laughs> That's a very good point. That's right. That's, you're exactly right it's the whole thing is an absurdity, and uh, no wonder you're puzzled why there's nothing in the media <laughs> I mean yeah. this is an extraordinary story. You would think people would be all over it, and
0: uh, but they're in denial uh, well well in fact, they're asking the administration what are you going to do and of course it's the administration and prior administrations that have been engineering these things in Eastern Europe for since the 90s, at least, as far as I've been able to find out. So what are you going to do about that which you've engineered? Uh, The second part of the question is about it's a little bit more important, but it's never asked, which is really tragic. Well uh, I really do appreciate your time uh, for people who want to find out more uh, you know excellent uh, writer great a- analyst of course uh, paulcraigroberts.org and uh, we'll put a link to how america was lost uh, I really do appreciate your time and obviously you don't need my encouragement but I hope that you'll keep on uh, doing what you're doing because it is uh, an important voice to to bring clarity uh, you know, the the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names. And uh, there's very little about the U.S., foreign policy in particular, that is ever called by its proper name. So thank you so much for all of your work.
1: Well, I really enjoyed speaking with you. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And
0: uh, I like what you do. It's a very good show. That thank you, you very much. You well, I hope we can talk again. Take care. Okay. So long.